Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. We're going through basics. I don't mean to insult anybody's intelligence. As I said last few weeks, sometimes you just don't know. Sometimes people are new to the church. Sometimes people are new to the Christian churches and churches of Christ, what we refer to as the Restoration Movement. Um, and, and sometimes things just get skipped. And, and sometimes it's good to go back to the basics. So last week we looked at who is Jesus and we're going to do part two today, because I don't think you can sum up who Jesus is in one sermon. Um, John says the whole world isn't big enough to cover him. Four Gospels, and frankly the whole Bible, and I can't do that in a sermon. So this is part two. Uh, to, and today I want, to, I want to expand on the scriptural idea that Jesus was always the plan. I it is, in a, it is inappropriate, it is inaccurate to read the Bible and say, well, Israel messed up in the Old Testament, let's have a plan B, let's send Jesus, and we'll fix the problem that Adam and Eve messed up in the garden, and then around the days of Noah, the earth completely messed up, and then Israel messed up, and so we'll, we'll send Jesus, and now we'll get it right. Jesus was always the plan, from, the begin, from before the beginning, as we will read. Um, we have to realize and understand that Jesus was the only plan from the beginning. So today, and we're going to do things differently. Usually, we're going to work backwards, or for where you're sitting backwards. Um, we're, we're going to start in Revelation and then work our way back towards the Old Testament, just because I think that the Scriptures work well that way today. Um, start at the back, work our way forward. And so with that, I want to jump into it, because I've got a few Scriptures to cover, and I want to make sure we don't... We don't drag our feet on it. So, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, just a single verse. That often, a lot of times, there's stuff embedded in a verse that you just kind of read through and you don't hit how big it is. Revelation 13, verse 8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. You know, we're in Revelation, we know what that is. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. There is a lot packed into that verse, even if we're not talking about the beast and 666 and all of that stuff. The Lamb's book of life were written there. And, and the Lamb slain before the creation of the world, what does that mean? And I think it gets, this is going to sound a little science fiction-y, bear with me, I know that I was raised on Doctor Who and time travel, but I think this gets into, one of the fun things with, with science fiction is that what used to be science fiction concepts, then scientists come back later and say, actually, there, there's some truth to what, what, these, what these science fiction writers are playing around with. Time is a little more complex than just, we're born, we grow old, we die, and there's the passage of time, and... and and, and, and it's done. Time, God made everything. And when we say everything, we mean even time. And so if God made time, what, 
What does it mean that Christ was the lamb slain before the creation of the world? Can you have this concept of before time? God is not just outside of the world. God is outside of time. Um, so, so for God, uh, he really does know what's going to come next. Because he's outside of time and he sees time in a way that we don't. Okay, For us, life is linear. The great example is that we're on a train. And you don't steer a train, you just ride the train to the end. And I get that for us, we're on a train and, and we're in the train and we're looking forward and we can see, but we can't see very far down the road because that's how human perception works. You can look out the front of the, if there was a front window on a train, you can look out the front of the train you can, or you can look out the side windows, you can see time passing. But God is not on the train. God is like on a really, really tall mountain looking down and can see where the train has been and can see where the train is going. And he sees it all at once. And so for God, the view of time is different. And he can look down and he can see, hey, this train is going to fall off a cliff if I don't build a bridge down the road. And so he builds that. And that's before the train ever gets there. He says that there's a bridge that needs to be there. And so God can build that bridge and, and... and that bridge is built before the need of the train. All analogies break down. Bear with me. Before God made man, he knew. He knew that Adam and Eve would, would sin and would eat, would eat the fruit. I, everybody says apple. I know all the pictures, it's an apple. I don't believe that. Because I don't know that anybody would give up eternity for an apple, but a pineapple. Now, pineapple's good. I could, I could see that. Before Adam and Eve ate the fruit... God could see down the way and see that they would need salvation from sin. Um, He knew that mankind would need redemption before he even created mankind. He knew that Jesus would have to die. And so then we ask the question, if he knew this, why make us that way? I think that that's a fair question. I think think that it's a little philosophical today, but I think that if we don't cover this, then people walk away and they think, well, what about... No, nobody likes reading a story where you go, well, why didn't they do... This would have made more sense if you'd just done this, right? The Lord of the Rings, the question that... I'll, you guys, some of you know the story of Lord of the Rings. It's a three-volume book set about this evil ring that needs to be tossed into a volcano to get rid of evil in this world, and that giant summary. And the question is always that always people ask is, well, there's giant eagles that are good. Why don't they just pick it up and drop it in the volcano and the whole book could have been over in a page? And, and the writer of Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, hated that question apparently because people asked that a lot even when he wrote it. And, and similarly, there are going to be questions that we should probably answer like, if God hates sin, why did he make us sinful? If, if, why did he build us that way that we could sin he, he could have skipped all that. Jesus wouldn't have had to have died on the cross if God had made the world differently, right? But I think it wouldn't work any other way. God can't do, when we say God can do everything, we know that God can't stand in the corner of, our, of, a, of a round room because the definition of a round room is there's no corners. And so you can't ask the question, if God can do anything, can he stand in the corner of a, of a round room? Can he lift a rock? Can he make a rock too big for him to lift it? And, and, and it's a nonsense question. These, these are questions that, 
that can't be answered because of the definition of our words. God can't be godless. God is always going to be godly. And by being godly, there is that which is holy, which is him, and that which he approves of, and there's that which isn't holy. Um, and, and one of the things that God loves is godly worship. And worship is, we've had this conversation, worship is only worship if it's willingly given and if we have the choice. If, if we have no choice, as I, I give the example, I can make my computer, my screensaver say, Jason is awesome. I can program it to say that. But nobody's going to be impressed by that because you can all do that on your computers too. And the computer has no free choice. The computer doesn't think it's just a machine. It was programmed that way. Making us unable to sin just means that we're machines. To make worship valuable, we have to have free will. Worship comes from the word worthy. We choose if God is worthy of worship or not. There would not be worship if there wasn't sin and if we didn't have the choice to not choose God. And so God set us up that for there to be worship and for us to be able to choose to live with him in eternity and, and to praise him and, and, and to have that relationship with him, we also have the choice to not choose that relationship with him or it all falls apart. And so because some of us would, because all of us sin. And because all of us choose poorly, he, he set it up that there would, be a, there would be a Christ who would die for us. And so, from the, and so in that throwaway verse, Revelation 13, verse 8, just in the midst of, this, of, of conversations about the beast and dragons and 666, we read Jesus was slain before the creation of the world. God knew our need. And Jesus was always the plan. And so we keep reading. 1 Peter, chapter. we, we turn back a bit. 1 Peter, chapter 1. We read this a little bit last week. We're going to read a little bit more this week. 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy... So be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's works impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. You know, we read this last week, um, but we read a little further and get some more of the context. Christ was chosen from the very beginning. It wasn't plan B. Um, we talked about this in my Sunday school class with the kids. David, we're reading through 1 Samuel, and we get to chapter 3, and God says, Samuel will serve the anointed one. And we had the conversation with the kids. What does anointed mean? No surprise. They didn't know what the word anointed was. They thought it might be related to the word annoy. Um, I get the logic. I get, I, I get that morphology. Um, we may not realize what the word anointed means. It means to be chosen. When we, when we choose elders and deacons and anoint them for the task, 
what we're saying is that they have been set apart to serve the church and we don't see that we choose it. We see that God chooses and we confirm who he's choosing in this church. Um, and we set them aside for the task and say, this is your job. This is, this is what, what you've been set aside to do. And so King David was set aside. He was the anointed king and he was set aside to rule God's people. But he was an imperfect ruler. Save them from their enemies, but he was an imperfect savior. But he sets the, he sets the tone. He, sets, he, he foreshadows the coming of the perfect anointed one. Uh, who will rule his people and save his people. And you know the Greek word for anointed one because it's Christ. That's, and the Hebrew word is Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. He's not Jesus Christ. He's Jesus the Christ. And he's Jesus the anointed one, anointed to save and rule over his people. Um, that's what he was... And, and he was chosen. How he would do that? How would he save his people? Before, before it all began, God knew that he would die for his people. Um, and, and I would point out in what we just read, just as, as, a, as a part of this, we do read that God judges our works. Now, we're not saved by works. And that's not what the writer, that's not what Peter is telling us. But, but too many people use that then as an excuse to say, well, then I can do whatever I want to because I'm not saved by works. Uh, and, and we read here that God judges us. He judges what we do. Because he cares about what we do. Because he's holy. And godless acts are anathema to him. What you do matters. And you will be held accountable for what you do. Uh, Yes, when we mess up, we we get forgiven. But that doesn't mean that we have permission to just keep messing up. Because we will be judged for what we do. Uh, He calls us to be holy. And we're not going to do it perfectly. But he judges our heart. And, and, it's, and it matters, therefore, what we, what we do. We can't call ourselves Christian and then act in an unchristlike manner because those are opposite terms. It's like standing in the corner of a round room. It, you can't do, it doesn't work. You can't call yourself a Christ follower and then not follow Christ. And so if there's a discrepancy between our words and our actions, you know our actions tell the truth. Our actions speak louder than our words. And I bring this up because I do think that we live in a day, it's probably always been the case, but with mass media, television, internet, cell phones. You know, I was talking with the kids this morning in in school, and it seems that the world is falling apart and in the worst place it's ever been. Maybe it's always been this bad. The difference is that I can look at how bad it is at any moment on my phone. And it used to be that if I wanted to see how bad it was, I had to tune in the 6 o'clock evening news. And I only got to see how bad it was for a half hour. And then I went around my day. But now, it's before us all the time. And everybody gets to talk about it on the internet and make their voice heard. And that's not helping matters. That we've all got an opinion, and they're usually bad opinions. Christians today, in this day of internet, are killing their witness too often. Too often we speak, I've done it too many times, spoken for, I delete more than I post these days on Facebook, because I'll post something and then I'll think about it for two minutes, delete that, that wasn't very Christ-like. Um, and, and too many people don't hit delete, and too often I didn't hit delete in, in the past. And in fact, I even had a friend recently reach out and said, You're, you haven't posted anything on Twitter for like five months, are you okay? I'm good, I'm just biting my tongue a lot. Um, and that's, that's Okay. Christians are killing their witness. We have to act Christ-like. We're called to because we will be judged. 
I know we're not going to get it perfect, but if we're not even trying, yeah, then, then, then we get judged on that. Now, turn back a little bit more. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that, we, that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus died for one, once and for all. His sacrifice for sin was, was once and for all, Even though I sin again and again, Christ only had to die to free me from the penalty of sin just the one time. And even though he died way before I was born, his sacrifice is still just as good today as it was back then, and he is essential. Now, I get that I'm preaching to the choir on that. I get that you all agree with me or you you wouldn't be here. Um, Jesus is the only way. Now, there are a couple of things I can do with it. Knowing that Jesus is the only way to get to God. Number one, I can say, yay, go Jesus, awesome. I follow Jesus, pat myself on the back, go home, celebrate by reading comic books and watching TV and not doing anything. Or, or I could share the message because we know that Jesus died for everyone. Not everyone's going to heaven. The Bible is very clear, but everyone has the chance if they follow Jesus, but not everyone knows that. And so I could stay home, be lazy, take it easy, kick my feet up, and congratulate myself on making a good decision in life, or I could evangelize. Now, evangelism is hard. I know evangelism is hard. It's, it's no fun to tell somebody something about Jesus, and then they say, that sounds stupid, I don't want to do it, I don't want to follow Jesus. And so a lot of times, because we fear rejection, we don't tell people. Um, it's kind of funny because in the rest of our life, I don't think that we do. I know that we all fear rejection, but we learn to get over it. Uh, I was taught, I don't know if this is true, but I was taught as a preacher uh, when I was first starting out, Jason, you're going to send out resumes, and you're gonna, out of your first 20 resumes, you're going to be lucky if two churches get back to you, probably only one. Um, and many of those churches, most of the, most of the uh, uh, responses you will get will be, we're not interested, or we've even already filled that position. In fact, when I applied here, I sent out resumes. I sent out about, I don't know, about the first dozen. I, th- I started kind of small. One, one of the churches I sent a resume to said, oh, we just filled it with this guy named Michael Cartwright. And, and I, I, what, what are the odds of that? <laughs> but but uh, uh, cert- certainly true. In my experience, the first church I went to, because I was brand new and I really, it's hard to get, I probably sent 40, 50 resumes out at least before I, before I ended up at Pleasant Hill Christian Church. You've got to do that, right? If you're going to apply for a job, we get that you're going to be rejected. And you're probably, I don't care how good you are, I don't care if you've got Harvard degrees and 
you're probably going to get more rejections when you send out resumes, but we do it anyway because we need it. Um, anybody that's married, most of us asked out, most, most of us guys asked out girls and got told no more than once, unless you want to live single forever. That's just part of it. It's not fun, but we do it. Um, politics, we all argue about politics these days, and our friends don't always agree with us, but hopefully they're still our friends. I say this all to say, we can, we can live with rejection. If you tell someone about Jesus and they don't like it, that's okay. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. It's not you. Don't take it personal. We keep kind of sharing. We keep kind of gently bringing it up. Not, not daily, not hit them in the face. But God wants us to share his plan of salvation with the world. We're the plan. It's the church. And, so, and, and it's not the preacher because... There aren't strangers that just routinely walk in the church, listen to a sermon, and go, wow, that's what I needed to hear. They're only going to come if a friend invites them. Uh, and, and so we do have to do our part in sharing, and that's what God wants us to do. Um, Jesus died for everyone, but not everyone knows it. Um, as much as it breaks our hearts, remember that it breaks God's heart more. God hates it when... God loves everybody. And he hates it when people choose not to follow him. But when I say hates it, not angry hates it, it just makes him so sad that people choose not to follow him. So, so why, why let us choose? Well, that goes back to that question of we're not machines. He has to, or we wouldn't be in his image. God is a creator who made a decision to create the universe, and we can make decisions. And that's what it means to be in his image. All right, backtrack even further. Let's go back to the Gospels. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. You know the passage. We won't read the whole passage. Jesus says, did I say, what, did I, Matthew 31. I, my contacts aren't working today. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger... And you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. There's a lot that happened before the creation of the world, right? Our inheritance was prepared before the creation of the world. Um, the kingdom prepared for us from the beginning, from before the beginning. Now, does that mean that the kingdom was prepared, but God didn't know who would be in the kingdom? Well, I don't think that that's how that works. Um, I think God knows exactly who's going to heaven. I think he always knew. And so you're going to say, well, then if God knew, then I don't really have free choice because before the creation of the world, God knew what I... Uh, yeah, that gets confusing, right? But I do think that we have free choice. We always have, we always have free choice. That, that image of, of God looking down on the train track and seeing the whole thing, God can see who gets on, who gets on the train. And again, analogies break down. Just because God sees ahead of us doesn't mean 
that we don't have the ability to choose. We choose whether or not we want his invitation. God doesn't live minute by minute the way that we do. He's outside of the world. He's outside of time. Um, And so we choose whether or not we want to accept his invitation. And then based upon that decision, God saw what we would choose and made a place for us and did it at the start. Now, I have to confess, this is where I'm great. You know, my father, the preacher, um, certainly uh, one of the reasons I preach is because of his influence and because of his example, and I appreciate that. And my mom, the science fiction fan, then had a huge influence on me as well. And my mom, the Star Trek and Doctor Who fan, and all those wonderful time travel stories that I grew up on, and, and who knew that those would help me understand a little bit of, of, of reality. Um, uh, God knows what we will choose bef- uh, before we do it because he sees it. And, and it's kind of like, like watching a movie in a way. Uh, uh, the char- you know, if they were real, you know, or, or watching TV and maybe it's even a reality show, um, you don't have it. They're making their decisions, but you get to watch their decisions. Um, and, and in the same way, God watches what we do, but we make, we make the choice. This is, I, I will say, I think this is hard in English. Um, English is, is what's called a periphrastic language, which means we use a lot of helper words. Um, I ran, I run, and then we start having to use other words. I was running, I have been running, I have been running, um, I could have been running, I will be running, I will have been running. We keep, <coughs> we keep tacking on all these words to make our verbs much more complicated, and eventually we kind of lose the difference. Um, there is a difference between I ran to the store and I was running to the store, but most of us in English don't care. There, there is a difference. One's, one emphasizes continuous action, one is punctiliar. And, and, I, and I say that to say, I don't know that we care. But the Greek language had all these different verb tenses. And, and in the New Testament, that, that emphasis on the different nuances of time and how we perceive it. Jason, that sounds very science fiction-y. Does time, are you saying that we don't perceive time the same way that maybe the New Testament writers did? Yeah, I actually think that there's some truth to that. I think that in English, we've kind of simplified things down. And I don't think that we, I don't think that we consider... Um, time in the same way. That doesn't mean it works differently. I don't think that we see it the same way. And I do think, therefore, all I say this to say, if I haven't gone too deep or crazy, I think that, that we oversimplify uh, how God sees the universe and that then we get confused and say, well, if God knows what I'm going to do, then I can't choose. But, but God is outside of time and he knows what we're going to do and he knows that we needed saving and he knows he knew that we who would he knew who would choose him and he prepared a place for us and that's great news because he loves us and he and he wants to spend eternity with us um he 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 wants us to be with him okay so i don't go too deep into this back to now back to the old testament isaiah chapter 49 Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. 
He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who, he who formed me in the womb, to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says. The Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up, princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Isaiah as a book is in two parts. Um, The first part of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, is about Israel. The second part, chapters 40 through 66, are about the coming Messiah. And, and there's a lot of symbolic language in Isaiah, and, and we're really bad as English speakers in particular, because we're not really trained in it. We're really bad about reading different genres. We're not supposed to read the poetry books the way that we read history books, the way that we read prophecy books. They're written in different styles. And and, and if we try to read Isaiah the way that we read Matthew, it's going to be a very confusing book. Um, it's, not, it's not meant to be so straightforward. Really, at the end of the day, I, this whole sec, the whole last 27 chapters of all of Isaiah, but especially the second half of the book, is about the coming Messiah. In this part, there is a suffering servant. Um, and, he, and we read that the servant will be despised. He will feel as if he labored in vain. And we're reminded in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus hurt. And going to the cross was something that, that he prayed that he wouldn't have to go through. Um, we know that he was despised. He did what he was called to do. He was faithful. And, and we know that he saved not just Israel, but everyone who would call upon his name, the whole world. Um, those who would accept his salvation are saved by him because God gave him victory. So the second set of Isaiah, the last 27 chapters, there's three sections. Um, There are nine chapters where we read about the coming king. Then there are nine chapters about the suffering servant. And then there are nine chapters about the conqueror who will win in the end. Um, and, and that 999, there, there, there's a chia, what we call a chiastic structure. There, in Hebrew, there's this chiastic structure. Um, and, and that is a way of writing that focuses our attention on, on certain things. Um, and, and so this, this is the beginning. Isaiah 49 is the beginning of the suffering servant passages that Jesus will come and suffer on our behalf. Uh, and and, so, and, and the Jews understood this. That's the crazy thing. The Jewish people knew that this was about the coming Messiah, but they still rejected Jesus. Our Savior suffered on our behalf so that we could be saved. Our, sa- our salvation is not cheap. It cost God greatly. There's nothing worse than treating an expensive gift poorly. You can think of Christmas gifts you've given to people that maybe cost you a lot and then weren't taken... You know, Kids are notoriously bad about playing with the box instead of the toy that's in the box. 
And you know that feeling of, you're, not supposed, to, you're supposed to like the toy. It costs me a lot. Magnify that. Our salvation costs God a lot. And, and, and woe betide us if we treat it cheaply. Now, I want to close. Uh, one, last, one last passage then. If that's the beginning of the suffering servant, again, chiastic structure points to the middle. The middle of chapters 40 through 66, this, this messianic half of Isaiah, is chapter 53. And I want to look at Isaiah chapter 53. Because I think that Isaiah focuses entirely. I, this is the central text of Isaiah. And, and I want to focus on that. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with sufferings. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, And yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, And yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and will be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. It was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. One of the things that's fun with the Hebrew language is that in Hebrew they don't have past and present and future the way that we do. They have complete and incomplete, and that's it. And, and what's fun to read this passage is that we bounce between complete and He's the lamb slain before the creation of the world. And so in English, we translate some of this chapter into past tense. But then when we talk about his, his offspring, we move to a future tense because the Hebrew language bounces between that incomplete and complete tense. Um, our salvation cost Christ a lot, did it not? We remember the empty tomb. We love the empty tomb. That's, that's this symbol of victory. But we, it's harder to focus on the pain of the cross, isn't it? The suffering of Jesus. Uh, it's, it's cruel. It's, uh, what? We, we like Easter, but we, 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 we celebrate Christmas more than Easter. And I think that it's because Easter's hard to focus on. It's very cruel to think about Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus was tortured, and he died for his sins. And yes, 
I know that he was God, and some people will say, well, if he was God, then it didn't hurt. But he was fully human as well. And it hurt him just as much. I think it hurt him more, because he didn't just die on the cross, but he bore the the sins of all of humanity. And I think that that crushed him. He didn't get what he deserved. He got what we deserved. And that's hard for me to wrestle with. We don't like to think of ourselves as all that bad, but that's the punishment that we deserve. Not because God is cruel, but because sin is cruel. Godlessness is cruel. And when we act ungodly, this is the fate that we deserve. This is what a life of sin and rejecting God should lead to. But when we accept God, we accept his forgiveness. I can't imagine hell, and I don't want to think about hell. I don't want to imagine it because it's an eternity of being separated from God. See, this world is not separated. It feels godless, but the truth is there is still an echo of God in this world. This is the world that he made, and it was perfect once, and it's not perfect now. It's a cracked mirror, but the image is there, broken. It still has, it still has, a, it still has that feel, this remnant of God in this world. Um, it has a hint of God's love. But hell is a place where people go and God isn't because God honors their choice. And God says, if you don't want to spend eternity with me, you don't have to. And so he made a place that he is not. And that's what makes hell, hell. It's a place where there is no God. And I don't want to picture that world. I don't want to imagine that world. Um, There would be nothing good there. Uh, I'll close with noting that in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, we read about his offspring. And we're going to ask that question, who is the offspring of the suffering servant? And that's the church. We are the offspring that that Isaiah foresees, uh, that God tells him about. That's you and me. We are the legacy of Jesus. We are his children. And so the call for us is to be Christ-like.